0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the It's Putin's World and We Just Live In It edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. Here with my co-pilot for the day, Tamara kaufman us. Hello, Tamara.
1: Hello, Shane. Our,
0: our third is out uh, in an undisclosed location. Uh,
1: maybe, maybe under Russian aerial assault. He may, know. he
0: may be. He may be uh, going to back up rebel forces in Syria. They need the help right now.
1: <laughs> They're it's, not getting it anywhere else.
0: <laughs> it's a bad week to be a Syrian rebel. Um, obviously, lots to talk about on the podcast today. Um, just to note, at the top of the show, we are recording this on Thursday afternoon. If World War III has started, by the time you hear this podcast, thanks for listening. And And, good luck. And good luck. (laughs) And we hope you'll go back and listen to our archive. (laughs) Um, So today on the show, Russia, of course, launches airstrikes in Syria, uh, changing the political calculus in the Middle East. I don't think it's too strong to say that. Um, Also, U.S.-backed rebels in Syria are coming under attack. Is the U.S. abandoning them, or will they come to their rescue and Edward Snowden is tweeting and Edward Scissorhands is trending. We'll get to that <laughs> later on in WordPlay. Um but first let's jump right into it um tomorrow. Why don't you kick us off with your uh your your wordplay, which is also slightly visual too, I think.
1: Yeah, so uh imagine, if you will, all the build up to um to the UN General Assembly here in Washington was about the Obama Putin meeting, that they were gonna have an out and out Confrontation, clash of wills on Syria. That was what was signaled verbally in their dueling speeches at the opening of the General Assembly. Obama um, making the point that it was Assad's brutality that created the war, that created the space for ISIS, uh, and that, um, and Putin, you know, arguing that uh, Assad is actually standing up to terrorism. now, flash forward to a bilateral meeting held yesterday afternoon between uh, the Russian Foreign Secretary, Lavrov, and our Secretary of State, John Kerry. Uh, and they decide to do a joint press conference, despite all of the uh, mutual grievance aired by their principals. So Kerry is standing next to Lavrov in New York, smiling, shaking hands, nodding along as Lavrov describes the need for a negotiated uh, solution in Syria, and at the very same moment, Russia is launching its first airstrikes in Syria and bombing apparently not ISIS targets, uh, but uh, targets affiliated with uh, the Free Syrian Army and, uh, and maybe also al-Nusra.
0: Yeah, maybe, for good measure.
1: So let's just begin with the optics yeah. for the United States. The optics are terrible. Yeah. It's not simply a policy vacuum that gave Russia space to move in, um, It is. It, it looks as though it's American acquiescence in this Russian intervention right. in, in Syria.
0: Right. And it's not as if this took us by surprise. I mean, you know, for, for a good two weeks now, the Pentagon has been counting every airframe that gets ported into Syria. They've been looking at uh personnel pouring in, these makeshift tents and barracks that are being set up. Everything has been trending towards some Russian military action, right? And then, you know, so here we are now. And every assurance, it seems to me, that had been given to the United States was, don't worry, we're just going after ISIS. And they're clearly not going after ISIS,
1: or rather, their definition of ISIS is pretty broad. Now, right,
0: right. Course, it's not our definition of just limiting to ISIS. <laughs>
1: right. right. <laughs> now there are others in the region who share the view that anything associated <clears throat> with political Islam might as well be ISIS, but they're not out there bombing right. those those other rebel factions in Syria. Um, and there was there were very interesting um, maps published this morning of the Russian strikes, and if you look at where those strikes actually took place, it's along the front lines of Assad's struggle with the FSA. So, right. you know, if you're just judging by this first day uh, of targeting, mm-hmm. it looks like what the Russians are doing is softening up the front line.
0: Does it help? I mean, to have the image of, of Kerry standing up there with Lavrov, and, and even today there was another one where Lavrov got up and he was waiting for Kerry. Uh, for a meeting, and he was chatting with reporters saying, don't believe anything coming out of the Pentagon. Then he actually said something crass to a female reporter, which was just ridiculous. So he's feeling like he's having a good day. And Kerry kind of shows up late, and he says, well, we're going to go in and have some conversations now. I mean, it's the Secretary of State. It just seems to me that we look like we're just their lap talk at this point. I mean, a colleague of mine actually said that she overheard in the Pentagon A military official used the phrase, we are now prisons Putin, Putin's prison bitch. I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, it it is.
1: You know, look, I don't, (sighs) I, I understand that reaction. And like I said, the optics are horrific. But I think that we do have to, we do have to spend some time looking at how the Obama administration views this Russian engagement. Number one, um, they still believe Rightly or wrongly, that Russia's interests in Syria are real, um, but limited. And that ultimately this is about Russia ensuring it has a seat at the table in the future of Syria. It's not about a fight to the death for the sake of Bashar al-Assad. So, you know, if, if you believe that Russia's aims are limited, then you think maybe, um, if you, you know, get to the right point, you can find an accommodation with them. A. B, there, you know, there's a view within the administration that Syria's a quagmire. That's why we've stayed the hell out of yep. it. And, you know, if Putin wants to go in there... Go for it. Go for it. Bring yeah. it on. Have a good time, buddy. And we'll see how well that works out for you. And, you know, it may even be a paradoxical sense that the best way to um, to uh, ensure that there's a counter-narrative against this uh, myth of, you know, the resurgence of, of Russia... Uh, is to see Putin fail in Syria, but I think the problem with that theory is, you know, are we sure we understand what Putin's definition of success is?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you think? I mean, is it is it too cavalier? Because I'm with you. There's a, I've talked to people too who sort of have this. If he wants to jump into the briar patch, go for it, please do. Is that too cavalier and too big of a gamble given all of the things that could go wrong? And I guess what I'm ultimately asking here is, you know. Like disabuse me of the notion that this is not actually some larger strategy to just kind of step back from the region and just like it somebody else's problem and hand it off to Putin.
1: I, I guess I would say if that is the grand strategy, it's an eminently foolish strategy. In mm-hmm. fact, so foolish that I can't believe that that that's really the thinking.
0: I don't um, know. I wouldn't
1: put it past him. You know, but I also tend to believe that policy incoherence um, and incompetence are, generally speaking, a majority of the time a better explanation for outcomes in Washington than right. some grand strategy. Right. Um, <laughs> your, gov-
0: your government is not quite as conspiratorially and sophisticated and inclined as right. You might if think.
1: only we, you know, <laughs> things could could work that smoothly. The right. gears could turn in such great coordination, but. No, I, I think there are, there are two huge problems. One is, um, one is while the conflict is ongoing and one relates to the outcome. So there's no question in my mind. And I think it's been clear from the moment the Russians started building up their. Uh, forces and equipment in Syria, that this was going to produce an escalatory spiral. Right. Why? Because the Russians are committed to Assad's survival. That's why they were inserting their, their ad- additional capabilities. The states in the region that have been supporting the rebel forces are equally committed to Assad's ouster. Mm-hmm. And they've made very clear from the beginning of this Russian buildup that they objected to the implication, which is that Russia was willing to invest more in Assad's survival. And so if Russia's investing more, they're going to invest more. Right. Um, and now seeing FSA rebels and Sunni civilians killed by Russian airstrikes, uh, which is all over the media and the Arab world today, are pictures of dead babies that were supposedly killed by Russian airstrikes yesterday. Um, that's only going to create more funding for rebels, including Islamist rebels, and it's going to loosen the uh, the constraints on funding some of the more radical factions. So I think we're going to see an escalation to match the Russians on the other side. That means the violence will increase. That means the refugee flows will increase. That means the price that the region pays and ultimately Europe now pays for this ongoing Syrian civil war will increase. So if a few weeks ago we were all focused on the uncontainable spillover, and therefore the need to resolve this conflict, Russia just pushed things, you know, 180 degrees in the wrong direction. Then we get to the question of outcome. Um, You know, if Assad was facing significant pressure on the ground, and some are arguing that he was, um, having trouble maintaining his own forces, having trouble recruiting Syrians into the military to keep his force strength, then maybe we were getting to a point where, with some support from the United States, you could develop a hurting stalemate on the ground and push for a diplomatic process. But with Russia, as well as Iran, pushing back against what had been, in, you know, in some places, a rebel advance over recent months, um, we now face a whole new phase in the war. Uh, it would be one thing if the Russians were positioning themselves merely to sort of defend a rump, Alawi state on the coast. Right. But if they're trying to soften up the front lines so that Assad's ground forces can push it forward, maybe even with Russian forces on the ground, uh, then I think that that has um, really disturbing implications for the outcome because it, it suggests that they're actually trying to get to a place where uh, the war is settled with Assad controlling as much territory as he can.
0: And this is a way of kind of wrapping up the Kerry Lavrov dynamic here. I mean, they obviously have a, well, I guess we would say it's a good productive relationship, right? I mean, vis-a-vis the Iranian nuclear deal. I mean, vis-a-vis other negotiations they've had. Or they, I mean, it seems like these are two guys who can talk to each other, I guess is what I'm getting
1: yeah, at. Yeah, they even complement each other on <laughs> right? a regular basis.
0: So... Do they get in the room and de-conflict this, or is this just a strategy that is above Lavrov's pay grade and he can just be in the room and say, like, sorry, John, it's out of my hands? I mean, what goes on when the two of them are looking? Can can, can those two calmer heads, we might say, prevail?
1: Well, first we have to ask the question, is Lavrov a calmer head? Um, (laughs) Or is he, you know, on board and um, supportive of the the expansionist, assertive strategy of his principle. We have no indication that Lavrov is a, a constraint or a voice of reason in some internal Russian debate. We have no evidence that there is an internal Russian debate. Um, so that's, I think, problem number one with the idea that the guys one level down can maybe tamp, tamp down confrontation. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other side, we have John Kerry, who, you know, on a number of issues... Um, has seemed like he's not necessarily always fully synced up with the White House when he's engaged in his diplomatic endeavors. At times, he's gone out and done tremendous work on behalf of the White House. And I think, you know, probably the chemical weapons agreement for Syria that he and Lavrov cooked up is a good example of that. But in this case, Russia and the United States have fundamentally contradictory views of the conflict and interests in how it's solved. And I just don't see how two guys, no matter how talented, can overcome that.
0: So we shall see. Hopefully this won't be uh well, we'll be talking about this next week. Hopefully it won't be, you know, the apocalyptic scenario. But um, let's move on to another wordplay which related to this, and this is uh, the Pentagon Press Secretary Peter Cook had what is another cringeworthy uh, public moment today when he was repeatedly asked by reporters in the briefing room, whether or not the United States was going to respond to airstrikes against Syrian rebel forces, including those who have been hit that were reportedly backed by the CIA. And no surprise, he's not going to go out and say they're backed by the CIA, but yesterday, Wednesday, you had officials confirming reports that were coming out of the region that these groups had been hit. And today what was remarkable is that he was talking about these as hypotheticals and saying, well, I'm not going to get into what may or may not have been hit, Whereas you had his boss, Ash Carter, the Secretary of Defense, the day before coming out and saying, they're clearly not hitting an ISIS-held area, so that it makes it obvious that they must be, you know, he didn't quite say obvious that they're hitting rebels, but the clear implication of that. The backing away of even being willing to confirm and talk about the possibility that U.S. rebel groups were hit, never mind that Senator McCain went out and said it mm-hmm. today publicly, Um I really think that if you were a Syrian rebel watching that press conference and hearing what's coming out of the administration today, you would be correct in thinking that we're not on your side and that we've abandoned you. And you know, it's 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 troubling from the standpoint of you know. I think there's the there's there's the, the basic aspect of like we armed these people, we got behind them, you know, we vetted them. Uh, these are not, by the way, the you know. Three or four or six, whatever it is. This T-O- is not the Pentagon T-O-T. program. Right. It's not the Pentagon program. These are guys that are in there that are getting the train invented by the CIA. They're getting U.S. anti-tank weapons in some cases, uh, and have been out there willing to fight against ISIS and not fight against the Assad regime. So that small minority of people who fit, who check all of our boxes that are able to, to work with us. And it really just sounds today as if we are not Helping them, and that we are not willing to come to their aid, and I just I wonder what that does to American credibility, and and again, whether this is just another signal that we are trying to sort of step back from the brink there, or not the brink, but to just extract ourselves from from the situation. If we're not even able to go in and say confidently that we will support and back up the very people who Carter himself testified we would back up if they came under attack, then who is going to believe us and never work with us again?
1: yeah I mean, look, um, we all know that communications is not policy, that's state true. Sure. You know, but um, this is a situation where the policy has a, a bunch of problems, but even with all those problems, the communications um, over the last 48 hours, the last several weeks on this issue of Russian intervention, uh, have been disastrous, and it's sort of amazing, given how much time. Syria policy takes up in the interagency um that they couldn't at least have gotten their messaging yeah better. So that's you know that's issue one, but I think you know we do have to hold out the possibility that the Russians are going to strike some ISIS targets um right. in Syria or you know maybe even in Iraq um or provide useful intelligence to to the Iraqis to to confront ISIS better in Iraq. Um I, and you know, and then I think the United States really is in a quandary. Look, the the administration reversed itself in terms of military engagement in the region, went back uh, to using force in Iraq and Syria to fight ISIS. Its declaratory policy was that Assad would go, but it never was investing any American resources in that policy. It was a declaratory policy yeah. only. And so, you know, if you're a Syrian rebel on the ground, I think you've long felt as though the, the U.S. did not have your back. Mm-hmm. Um, if the Russians come around and actually, you know, do some damage to ISIS, um, then I think the United States is in a very tough position, uh, to, to, you know, be wholeheartedly against what the russians are doing since they're not willing to do any more themselves um and you know <laughs> so without buying into the idea you know that that there's some conspiratorial intention to withdraw from the middle east and cede it to the oh, russian do buy into Iran,
0: it do it buy into it no, no,
1: no. <laughs> there there is no question that the policy vacuum on the syrian civil war um left room for others to take the initiative in a way that the United States has now therefore to define a policy in reaction to and if Russia's attacks target ISIS as well it makes that US reactive policy much more complicated and difficult to articulate. You can't be against the Russians when they are also fighting your enemies Right Um, I I guess, I don't know, the one clear conclusion I guess we can come to here is that um, consistently the administration has seemed interested in seeing others do the work on the ground uh, in Syria and in Iraq. And what the U.S. has been willing to do, it's been willing to do from the air. And, um, you know, maybe maybe they see that there is a role that Russia could play Right. as part of those boot, non-American boots on the ground.
0: I guess I could see a situation where, you know, a week from now, let's just sort of project out in which you know, the world will look potentially very different a week from now. And we've been saying all along exactly that we want other forces in the region, you know, ideally the Iraqis and ideally these moderate rebels to take over. If we really believe, if we, if we could get in a room, and, and is it, and is this too fanciful to believe that we could get in a room with the Russians Come to some mutual agreement, because I cannot believe that Vladimir Putin ultimately is really interested in putting large numbers of troops in the ground and doing it all on his own. Could we come to some reasonable compromise where maybe they do put some ground forces in there? Maybe we all we, we sort of form this unlikely partnership, uh, this, a coalition of the willing, if we want to go back and call it that, where you know we do coordinate to a certain degree to go after our mutual enemies. And we just say, you know what? We've been looking for a political solution to end this. We've been looking for a way for Assad to go, maybe we can cut a deal and it is ugly and it's going to be nasty. Or are those just like unbridgeable chasms between us and the Russians on this? Because if, if they're unbridgeable, then it seems to me that the only thing you're talking about here now is, you know, do you let Russia take over or not? Right, because we are not investing any more than we already have been. Uh,
1: yeah, look, I I think that it's not necessarily that American interests and Russian interests are
0: unbridgeable,
1: but I do think that the interests of the Arab states and Russian interests in Syria are unbridgeable. And I don't think that the United States is um, prepared to... Uh, and I actually don't think it's realistic to find a solution to the war in the face of that Sunni Arab opposition to Assad staying in power. I think it, it's quite possible that Kiri and Lavrov could get in a room and come up with a, a transition plan. They did it. It's called the Geneva Initiative. Uh, the problem is that the people doing the fighting on the ground and the people giving them the money and the guns to do the fighting didn't agree with it, mm. and so it never went anywhere. Um, and, you know, so... But I think that with the Russian intervention now having begun, um, the U.S. is in a much weaker position to support the arguments and claims of those Syrian rebels and their Sunni Arab allies that any transition requires Assad's departure.
0: One of the things that's been really scary to contemplate, too, in the past couple of days is this whole issue of deconfliction. I mean, at base, is not so much about... You know, trying to find mutual ground it's about making sure that our planes don't run into each other, yeah, and that we don't shoot each other down, and that some you know crazy you know seconds long you know moment of panic and misjudgment and miscalculation spirals into you know a wider conflict i mean putting your state department hat back on for a second, <laughs> right I mean what is in the sort of the in the scary to think about situation in which there's a big misunderstanding? And two American plane, an American plane and a Russian plane bump, or an American plane fires off and shoots at a Russian plane because it thinks it's being engaged. I mean, when that happens, what is the practical risk of something escalating very, very quickly into, you know, an all-out kind of war? Or would, or would we look at that and we would say, it must have been an accident, everybody hold off? I mean, we worry about and deconflicting yeah. you know, the nightmare scenario, but how likely is that to happen if you know, you had sort of an, an incident like that in the skies over Syria.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, this is the danger of escalatory spirals is that it's once things start moving, they can move quickly and you can't, you, those kinds of accidents become much more likely and also much harder to deal, to manage the consequences of. I think when it comes to the U.S. and Russia and probably Israel as well, which let's remember has struck you know, in Syria from the air several times over the course of this conflict to prevent arms transfers to Hezbollah. And as soon as the Russian buildup started, Prime Minister Netanyahu from Israel went off to Moscow to deconflict with the Russians. So it's not only U.S. and, and Russian aircraft over Syria we need to think about um, in terms of potential incidents. I suspect that in all three of those cases, though, it would be a sort of pullback look for de-escalation. The question is, what's the damage in the meantime? I mean, there have been other cases much more adversarial and much more tense. For example, during the tanker war in the 1980s in the Persian Gulf, the United States mistakenly shot down an Iranian civilian jetliner, right? right? Right. Um, That didn't escalate further. It it was immediately de-escalated and managed and investigated, and the U.S. paid reparations. And... You know, so if that can happen in the middle of the U.S.-Iranian tensions of the 1980s, I think we could probably handle an incident. Um, But I don't... You know, what I don't think we can handle in a very small airspace is uh, a bunch of forces with fundamentally different missions pursuing those missions simultaneously, and folks on the ground uh, who have an interest in interfering with those missions in different ways. I mean... If you start seeing more man pads going into Syria, you know, then Israeli air forces, American force and coalition forces and Russian forces could all be in for a world of hurt.
0: I'm going to make a prediction. We'll see how it comes out next week. The Russians will have hit more U.S.-backed rebel groups. And there'll be casualties. There'll be Russian airstrikes in Iraq. And a Russian pilot will have been shot down and fall into the hands of either a rebel group or ISIS.
1: Oh wow! Wow, you—that is a
0: dark vision of. Next I think week, this is, I, but I think this is where we're going. I think, I think that but opting maybe, for the darker maybe. vision seems like the safer bet.
1: Maybe for the Russians, this is about sh- you know forcing us and the Gulf states to realize the imperative of brokering a deal with Assad. Maybe this is a short-term measure to force everybody to the table. So maybe a a week from now
0: we're having talks.
1: Yeah, or three weeks from now. You know, a short bombing campaign that, that, you know, because it's so scary, gets everybody to the table.
0: Right, right. In which case, you know, would we then be congratulating Vladimir Putin for a shrewd stroke of, you know, using force to force diplomacy? Who would have thought?
1: (laughs) The ironies are
0: thick. Nobel Peace Prize candidate.
1: (laughs) I don't think anybody got the Peace Prize for for Bosnia, did
0: they? I don't think think so. I don't don't think think so. So. Um, All right, let's move on to our last wordplay. A much lighter, happier tone. Um, So Edward Snowden, we all know who he is. Edward Scissorhands? Well, Edward Edward Snowden decided to start tweeting, and I think he's collected now more than a million followers. Uh, so he has an at Snowden Twitter handle, which, by the way, was taken by someone else. And then I Twitter guess,
1: passed it on.
0: Twitter gave it to Snowden. Right. Somebody, wow. I think either his lawyer or I'm forgetting exactly how it happened, but somebody on his behalf said, can he have the handle? And Twitter said, yes, he can. Um, so Headline News uh, decided to have on uh, a, a commentator, a, a talking head, if you will, uh, a man named John Hendren, uh, who goes by the Twitter handle at Fart <laughs> Which, I don't know, did might the have Booker, been your first, for the bookers first. Clue red flag. that maybe this
1: wasn't the guy they had in mind for their show.
0: So, so at, at fart. fart, at fart, it I'm not going like to call a him serious
1: it. political He sure does. At he sure fart. sounds
0: like he's very serious and that he might have a lot to say about America's, you know, number one fugitive, Edward Snowden, uh, comes on and is given questions from this uh, uh, headline news uh, anchor and proceeds to answer all of the questions about Edward Snowden as if she was actually talking about Edward Scissorhands. Well, the that's... Johnny Depp character from the Tim, Tim Burton movie about the man with scissors, scissors for four hands. hands.
1: Which is perfectly logical right. when you think about it. So she's, <laughs> she asks him,
0: well, there's classified information out there that Edward Snowden was referring to that was released that could have feasibly harmed people. And Mr. Fart responds... <laughs>
1: No, well, his name is not really Mr. It's, Fart. It's John
0: Hendrum, but I'm totally calling him Mr. Fart. Because <laughs> you're not getting past me, At Fart. Um, Responds, well, you know, to say that he couldn't harm somebody with what he did, he, he could, he absolutely could. But to cast him out or to make him invalid in society simply because he has scissors for hands, I mean, that's strange. I mean, people didn't get scared until he started sculpting shrubs into dinosaur, sh- dinosaur shapes and whatnot. It's the anchor. Doesn't, I mean, is either... Totally keeping calm or not listening to a word this man is saying. What can she
1: do? She's got to she make says, it through to a commercial break somehow. This is the
0: number one rule on cable TV is just keep going. Right. Just keep going. Get so through it.
1: Her training worked.
0: So she says, now Snowden's living in Russia. Not scissor hands. Snowden is living in Russia.
1: Did she so, say that? Not yeah. Okay.
0: Some people say it's hypocritical that Snowden has asylum in Russia. Russia has a lot of human rights violations. That fart continues. <laughs> this is through the transcript casting him out is completely wrong we're treating him like an animal somebody who should be quarantined and put away just because he was created on top of a mountain by vincent price and incomplete <laughs> with scissors for hands and no heart edward Scissorhands is a complete hero to me she replies wow. but what about the choice he made to live in a country like russia and then he says, "I mean, where is he going to go? You know, we cast him out. We got scared, and he poked a hole in a waterbed with his scissor fingers, and that's just unreasonable." Which <laughs> implies, "Well, John, I appreciate you giving us your opinion."
1: Can do? I get the sense that maybe they found the wrong John. What was his last Hendren? name? Hendren. Hendren. Maybe there's uh, some other John Hendren, isn't a cybersecurity not... expert, perhaps.
0: Perhaps <laughs> I. You know, I just. I, 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 it was a moment of, uh, of just, I guess, levity in a week of otherwise, uh.
1: This is why we should all have verified Twitter handles.
0: Well, he, for all I know, let's, let me me click on at fart while we're at it and see if at fart is verified. Uh, he is not verified. He does have 93,000 followers. Uh, Silicon Valley's most influential thought leader. He's also a noted, (laughs) he's also a noted troll.
1: Uh, <laughs> okay, so so they looked at his Twitter bio and they thought, oh, Silicon Valley, he can talk about Edward Snowden I, it's, on the air. It's
0: amazing. I don't well, know the best. Kudos found this. to
1: AtFart for trolling cable
0: news. It's but, true. Wow. It, and I really, this, this, this did make me stop as a moment as a journalist and think, you know, I, I don't know whether to look at this as, should I be, you know, ashamed for my profession by what this anchor did or should I pat her on the back and say, you know what? You made the best of a bad situation.
1: Courage under fire. Well done. That's yeah. what I say. It's, you know, but the booker.
0: Yeah. That's, that's pretty bad. Yeah. But Edward Snowden is tweeting now, which I think is going to be, you know, that was the uh, the, the. I impetus. look forward
1: to muting, blocking, and not following Mr. Snowden. Well, you're
0: not going to follow him? Why not?
1: Because his opinions on global affairs have never been uh, of interest.
0: You not at all?
1: No. <laughs>
0: you don't think he has like s- shocking, you know, concise insights into, I mean, what, 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 we should tweet him right now about Putin and Syria.
1: He, <laughs> you know, his behavior um, has had and undoubtedly will continue to have far reaching consequences on the United States and on foreign affairs, but uh, his political analysis is entirely irrelevant. In in that sense, he reminds me of um, middle school boys that read too much science fiction.
0: I think he's gonna, and along those lines, I think he's gonna take trolling to new heights. And you know what? This is this is also. I'll tell you why I think this. He has one point one million followers. He is following one account. Can you guess what it is?
1: Glenn Greenwald
0: the nsa (laughs) (laughs) that in itself is just a a troll worthy action (laughs) when you got when you are with 1.1 million followers and you follow one account and it's the nsa yeah i'm watching only you exactly um all right let's move on to object lessons well go first
1: sure um and and i showed you before uh, this beautiful jacket
0: that is stunning. I love yeah. it.
1: Um, so my uh, my colleague Shakayak just came back from a trip to her uh, native land of Afghanistan, and she came into work wearing this absolutely stunning uh, handmade jacket made of um, material from Afghanistan in a very modern, stylish, tailored design. And so I just, I I had to bring this in and show you. This is from a business called Zarif Design. Zarif, um, which means precious in Farsi or Dari. Mm Um, and it's a. Com- I thought maybe
0: it was made by Zarif.
1: <laughs> Javad Zarif. Yeah, like a this is what he does on the side. Yeah, no, this is an Afghan jacket, not an Iranian jacket. But um, this company was founded by a woman, Zoleh Sherzad, from Kabul uh who left Afghanistan as a refugee when she was 10 um but after uh the fall of the Taliban um started first a nonprofit and then this for-profit company that uses traditional Afghan textiles and turns them into beautiful beautiful clothing for men and women um she employs about 50 people in Kabul who are um making these beautiful clothes and, uh, you can get them online through the far and wide collective. Um, so I think not only are they stunning, but they're supporting both traditional crafts in the weaving of these textiles and, uh, a small industry and, and yeah. the livelihoods of some, uh, Afghans who really probably need those jobs.
0: Yeah, so. definitely. And it's men, men and women's clothing. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous, gorgeous clothing
1: vests jet. for men. You can, you can, Just will hook fall. you up.
0: I could rock a vest. You could totally rock a vest. Totally do it. I might do it underneath a blazer, but I would totally do it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so my object lesson, actually, I'm going to bring it up right here, is this photograph of <gasps> mountains in Mars. Whoa. With these,
1: l- you could ski on that. that you could totally like ski, ski on that, right?
0: It looks like a great ski slope. And it, these uh, sort of, you know, lines, these you know furrows that are coming off of the mountains are what scientists now are pretty convinced is evidence of seasonally flowing water on Mars. So not hot frozen damn. water. Exactly. Water is flowing. It's flowing seasonally. These are recent, uh, um, furrows with saline deposits in them, uh, leading us to believe that yes, there is flowing water on Mars, which of course, uh, you know, brings up the whole question of was there ever life on Mars? Could Mars sustain life in the future? Um, apparently this, this news came out uh, not in time for uh, Ridley Scott to work it into The Martian, the movie The Martian, which comes out this week. But that's on everyone's mind. And you know, I bring this up because, like, here we are talking about, like, you know, an apocalyptic scenario, and maybe we should just leave this planet for another one uh, facetiously. But I actually, I mean, I've talked about this before, I think, on the show. I'm a space nerd. <clears throat> I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid. And I really believe if you're talking about long-term security of the human race there you is got to g- go to
1: other planets you're going to
0: have to go to other planets wow. there will come a day if we should be so lucky to survive as a species that long where this planet becomes uninhabitable and i really believe
1: because be-
0: of us sure because of us or because the sun explodes you know <clears throat> and i'm really just i'm a big believer i'm always I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a space dork i'm a big believer in human exploration but i i just i think there is something about mankind reaching for the stars that underscores that Human beings may have been born here, but we were not meant to die here. And I really wow. believe in this sort of not not, not to be philosophical, but I do I, mean, I
1: wouldn't die on
0: Mars. With well, but
1: I mean, the idea, I'm not
0: saying go to Mars, but this should open us up to the possibility of finding other habitable worlds. And I mean, and I, and I really, and I believe that very passionately, not just as a kind of a dreamer speaking. But, like, yes, if we're talking about the long term viability of our species, we should be talking, you know, and if we're talking about these in tens of millennia, even, uh, about the possibility of one day having to get off the rock.
1: Now, that's and go a long term strategy, Shane.
0: Right? Office of Net Assessment has nothing on me. On you. When this, this is a very long term, galactic long term policy. I want to start the Office of Long Term Galactic Planning. At the Pentagon, <laughs> oh. I would totally do that. Yeah, I could get behind. You can that. just
1: stock your bookshelf with Robert Heinlein. Exactly. That'd exactly. Be way cool.
0: Pay me to find ways to think up, like you know, light speed engines or solar sails or whatever. Anyway, I thought that was one of the coolest things I'd seen in a very long time with it, that photograph. It is undoubtedly Pretty cool. awesome. Uh, so that brings us to the end of this week's show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to all of our other shows at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. And when you download the podcast from Instacast or iTunes or wherever you download your podcast, please leave a rating and a comment. Uh, the show was uh, edited this week by Jen Howell, as always. Our music was performed by At Fart and Vladimir Putin.
1: <laughs> oh, you wish. Yeah, I
0: wish. I wish <laughs> his name was Putin or Tootin. That's right. No, of course, our music was performed, as always, by Sophia Yan. The very
1: patient. The very Sorry, patient.
0: Yeah. Your music is joyously fart-free this week. <laughs> As is always, thank you, Sophia. Uh, on behalf of myself and Tamara kaufman uh, thank you for listening to the show, and we will talk to you next week.
1: Here's a cool fact.